Father God, we just want to thank you for what you're doing here uh, in this community. Lord, we want to thank you for the heart of those who are here, who, those who consider this to be their church family. Lord, the heart is clearly evident when we look at how we're caring for our students, that, that, that we have people here who, who want to volunteer their time to, to, to see the young people in our congregation um, flourish. Uh, we know that the world is a messy and confusing place, and people who are authentically stable matter so much to, those, to, the, to our young ones. And so um, we just want to thank you for that heart. We want to thank you for, for, for those who care about those uh, who live around us who don't um, have the basic needs they, they need to, to go through day-to-day -day life, uh, whether it's food or shelter or toiletries or whatever it may be. Uh, Lord, you've called us as your church to care for the least of these in that way. And may, I just want to thank you for, for those who've, who've stepped up to that and, and it will pray that you continue to encourage us to have a heart for, for the hurting in this world. God, we want to think of, uh, of the women in this congregation this week who are at the retreat for this weekend. We pray that you uh, continually, as you probably already have, uh, meet them um, in, in, um, in the community that they have there, in the, in the focus that they're putting on you. May, may they continually grow um, to, in a deeper love for you and a deeper love for each other and then bring that back to this space so we can find a deeper love for the world around us. God, as we approach your scripture, a particularly difficult section of scripture, we pray for humble hearts, we pray for wisdom, we pray for clarity, we pray for uh, the appropriate kind of wrestling that, that usually comes out of passages like this. Uh, may in the midst of the very strange language, uh, we find a better understanding of who you are and a deeper love for you uh, and each other. Amen. All right. In 2011, a man named Harold Camping, anybody, anybody remember that name? There was a bus downtown, actually, so you could have, if you lived downtown, you would have seen it. He predicted the end of the world. Maybe that kind of triggers it for you. Uh, maybe you remember that, maybe you don't. It was a big deal. He, uh, he made national news. Uh, Harold had studied what, what was known as biblical numerology, uh, and so he did the math uh, at the book, at, the, like, at places like the end of Daniel and Revelation, and concluded that on May 21, 2011, would be the time that Jesus returned to call us up into the clouds and end what we, this phase of what we know the earth to be. Um, spoiler alert, he was wrong. In case you didn't know that, um, he was wrong. Uh, but he believed that this, he actually, people donated their livelihoods to him because they, real, they thought that this was it, this was all there was going to be. And it's things like that, because over the years, he's not the, that's the, one of the more recent ones that was the, those kind of things are happening all the time, but it was one of the more mainstream, not mainstream, it was one of the more popular ones that made national news and things like that. Um, there have been a number of them through the years, though, of people, there still are them now, but they don't get as much traction, uh, of people uh, making predictions out of the scriptures, right? In, in some some places in the church, there's this idea that there's some kind of secret code layered into the pages of Scripture, and it's even become part of pop culture, right? Uh, whether you're Christian or not, the, these ideas that there's some kind of secret that if we could just decipher the Bible, we'll figure it out, um, has actually made a ton of money for a lot of people, right? You, maybe you remember this movie. Anybody watch this one or read this book? Right? The Da Vinci Code is all about that, that there's the secret code in the Bible, and that, that if we were just to figure it out, we'd find some stuff about 
different things, and, uh, and, and that's exciting for us. Um, if you ever now watch the History Channel, right, it's now pretty much all that, right? Whether it's, uh, either, whether it's just aliens, right, because I don't know how the History Channel moved from, like, being history to everything being aliens, right? I mean, if you don't watch the History Channel anymore, pretty much everything is about aliens. I don't get it. This guy is on all the time. Um, or, but actually, I did a little search, too, about the way they speak about the Bible, and it's almost all conspiracy or code or figuring those kinds of things out. It, it creates this kind of, this, 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 I don't know, it's exciting, and so people tune into it a little bit in that way. I remember the History Channel, my favorite show back in the day, um, which is a weird show, but anybody ever watch the show Modern Marvels? Couple of you, and you know, if those of you who didn't, you're missing out. And if you were actually to go look at like the list of their shows, you'd be like, I'm not missing out. Like, they'd be like, the episode on paint. And you're like, God, oh, literally, we use it as a joke. Watching paint dry is boring. And you might start, you start the episode on paint, and you're like, it's going to be boring. And by the end, you're like, paint is the most amazing thing ever, right? They could do that every time. It was, anyway, that's, that's weird, but... The point being, the idea that God hid a secret message in the pages of Scripture is a popular one. It's popular because it's exciting. We love mysteries, we love puzzles, we love secrets, right? Conspiracy theories are exciting, partly because our, God wired our brains to recognize patterns. It's how God made us. It's actually, actually what humanity is the best at compared to anything else in this world, we, we can put pieces together and notice how things fit together. Sometimes, though, in real, in real ways, which, makes it, which allows us to create this amazing, amazing things that people can create. But in some times, we can do that in a way that gets a little strange or, or off track. That applies to us here when we look at Scripture as well, because there are parts of the Bible that are easier uh, to, to understand, that are really easy to understand. And then there are other parts of the Bible where it's easy to fall down different rabbit holes like the History Channel sometimes does or like things like the Da Vinci Code. And the reason for that is that the Bible contains lots of different kinds of literature. Maybe you knew that already, maybe not. There are sections of the Bible that are, that are narratives, that are stories, that they're meant to tell us how God has moved through history. Uh, it's actually, actually, the Bible as a history book in those narrative sections is incredibly accurate. The things that we have found with our archaeological evidence that, that prove people like Hezekiah existed, that David existed, that there was a conquest in Canaan, that the, all of those things we've come to prove over and over and over again are actually the true history of how things unfolded. There are sections of the Bible that are meant to tell us those stories. Those are narrative sections. <clears throat> they show God's interaction with Israel and then eventually with the church. They tell us about Jesus' life and his teaching. Um, much, actually, most of Matthew, as we've seen as we work through it this year, have been those narrative stories. This is, you know, this, is, this is what the life of Jesus looked like. These are the things that he taught. We see those in the Gospels a lot. But narrative isn't all we find in Scripture. We have a lot of other things as well. We have lists of genealogies, which is probably the thing you guys mostly skip over as you're reading the Bible, those long lists of this guy begat this guy who begat this guy, right? Hard to read. They have their place. They're really interesting um, if you know how to read them, but that's a different kind of literature. We have sections of law, right? It's, that's the other part you probably skip over, the books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, those large sections in which it just describes how the temple is supposed to be set up or what happens if these things happen. We have poetry, which is amazing. 
uh, two different kinds of poetry even. We have poetry like in the, that are like songs, in the, like in the Psalms. These, these, uh, they actually are songs, these, these things that people would sing uh, in worship or other things like that. And we've got large, large sections of poetry in the Bible. But we also have poetry in the form of prophecy, right, where you see that, that, they, that the, the prophets, the ancient prophets of the Old Testament, often spoke through poetic language. And it's important for us to understand all of these different kinds of genre if we're going to dive into different parts of Scripture, because there are different rules for, a di- for, a, for, uh, for interpreting different genres of literature within the Bible. One method doesn't work for all of it. You don't interpret narrative like you interpret poetry. It's different. What I mean by that is that it, when we read the stories in like the book of Kings, we say, hey, this guy did these things. That's what happened probably. But then there are other sections where like in, in the Psalms, God will say to Israel, I took you out of Egypt on eagle's wings. We realize it's in the midst of a poem. And so we realize that what God is saying here is not that I built a gigantic eagle, right? Took the entire nation of Israel, set it on its back, and flew out. No, none of us think that that's how it would happen, right? Because we realize that inside of poetry, it's a metaphor. It's, you, it's, it's, it's like God saying, I took you all up out with this magnificent event. Not literally an eagle, right? We understand the metaphor because it's found in poetry, Now, we also realize sometimes those distinctions are really easy to make, like in the example of the eagle with the wings, but sometimes they're harder, like in places like Genesis 1. I don't mean to open a huge can of worms here, but I'll just mention that the Genesis 1-1 is a poem. It's a chiasm, actually. It's a a very, very uh, commonly used Hebrew poetic device. So in that space, you have the first three days of God creating in which he creates space. He separates light and dark. He separates sky and sea and then land and sea. He creates space. And in the second three days of the poem, he fills the space. The sun and the moon, light and dark. And you have the the sea and the sky. You have fish and birds. And then you have land animals and people. Now, the reason that's tricky is because... When we're talking about eagle's wings, we all agree that's clearly a section of poetry meant to be understood as metaphor. When it comes to Genesis, we don't all agree on that. There are some people that say Genesis 1 is is like a narrative to describe the beginning of time, that God in seven literal days created the earth. It's somewhere between 10,000 and 20,000 years old, and all of those things happened in that way. Some people interpret the poetry in that space that way. Others say, no, absolutely not. That would be the same, they would argue that that would be the same thing as God creating a giant eagle. They would argue that, that Genesis 1 is just trying to convey a point, that God made everything, that the space that exists and everything inside of that space was created by God. It's another possible interpretation. Now, we're not here this morning to settle that debate. Not at all. Happy to talk to you about it, but not right now. The point I'm trying to make is that when we talk about these different genres, realizing they need to be interpreted differently, we realize then that very thoughtful people who are genuinely trying to follow Jesus can come to very different conclusions, right? Now, if you've been here a while, you know we here at Harbor Life are okay with that. That's something that these kind of things are things we need to wrestle with individually, and as a community together. We mention often 
that we that believe that one of the defining characteristics of a follower of Jesus is someone who's willing to wrestle with God. I say this story often in the Old Testament. Jacob wrestles with God, and God changes the name of his people for eternity to the name Israel, which means to wrestle with God. God says, the defining characteristic of my people forever will be they wrestle with me. So we're okay with that wrestle. We don't need to come to the same conclusion because we think that actually in community there, as we wrestle together, we gain a bigger and broader and more beautiful understanding of who God is. The point I'm trying to make out of all of this is that sometimes the Bible is relatively easy to interpret. Sometimes it's really straightforward. And sometimes it takes a bit of work. And that's within the genres we've already listed, but there's also one more genre that we haven't listed. And that's one known as apocalyptic literature, which is by far the most difficult to understand, the, different, the most difficult genre of literature to understand in the Scripture. Now, there are two primary places in the Bible that are considered to be apocalyptic literature, though it does jump into other places, like in Matthew, like we'll see today. But the most common are the second half of the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation. In these books, we find a lot of strange things. We find a ton of metaphor. Uh, we have beasts and scrolls, actually a few pictures here. If you ever want some great art, just like type in the beasts of Daniel and you'll get, you know, you see these winged lions and four-headed leopards and then that crazy like Tyrannosaurus or the T-Rex thing in the back there. You get, these, you get these, these crazy imageries at the, book of, uh, at the end of the book of Daniel, or things like this, right? The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse is another one that we love to think about in those spaces. In apocalyptic literature, things, it's very, very metaphor-driven. You have a lot of very strange images as well, and, and we have to wrestle with those kinds of things. It's where we start to see things like beasts and scrolls and trumpets and stars falling and dragons and angels and sometimes demons and Satan. And we have blood and we have plagues and we have bowls. We have all this really, really weird stuff. A lot of the weird stuff that lives in the, that's in the Bible lives in these sections. And so much of it has been the foundation for how we understand the end of the world and the predictions that we make out of it, some of which can get really, really strange. If you ever want to go down a YouTube rabbit hole, just do that. Type in, how does the world end? And uh, don't listen to any of it. Most of it's crazy, but it's all there. So I want us to realize two things then. One, if you don't understand Revelation or Daniel or the section of Matthew we'll read today fully, because uh, Jesus is using apocalyptic language in the message, passage we're going to use, that's okay. I don't, I don't understand it all either. Hopefully over the years I'll continue to learn more and more and we can together, but it's hard. And people have argued about it for centuries. The nature of this literature is tricky because it often feels like we're jumping through time. As we saw last week, when Jesus begins to speak in this apocalyptic literature, we can go, okay, he's talking about the fall of Jerusalem that's going to come in 70 AD. And there are parts of it that very clearly and seemingly uh, straightforwardly line up with the fall of Jerusalem. The abomination that causes desolation is, is Titus riding in and destroying the temple. Sure, those things match up. There's times where we can go, we're locked into this period of time. But then as you read it over again, you go, but this little section feels like we just jumped forward in time a little bit. But then Jesus says it's all going to happen within this generation. Yeah, it's going to. And this part feels like it's coming later. Yeah, that's the nature of apocalyptic literature. It's going to make it feel like we're bouncing back and forth between those two. 
Even the phrase like the abomination that causes desolation was first used in Daniel, and then Jesus uses it again in Matthew. He's saying it happened back then, and it's also happening here, and maybe happens again later. It's what makes this so tricky. It's layered with Old Testament Hebrew prophecy. It's, it's, labeled with, it's layered with Greek imagery. It's labeled with Hebrew imagery. All of these different parts are how apocalyptic literature work. What that means for us is that we need to be then very careful how we read it and use it in particular. Because how we use it will begin to shape how we see God, how we live in this world right now. If we, there are ways that we could take this literature and create something like Harold Camping did, where we could get people together to donate all of their money because the world's going to end, only to find out that it didn't. And that's irresponsible and dangerous. How we read these pieces and how we approach them will shape how we share the good news of the gospel in this world. So finally, before we dive into our admitted, admittedly very weird passage for today, I want to throw out one more thing. So often, our perceptions of who God is actually shape how we read Scripture. Now, the point of Scripture is to do the opposite. How we read Scripture should shape how we see God, but often we take our preconceived ideas of who God is and apply them to Scripture. If you believe that God is like Zeus, an angry, judgmental person who's ready to throw a lightning bolt at you, you're going to read Revelation very differently than if you view God as a father who wants to care and see you flourish. How we understand God, or, or whether, how open we are to reimagining how we understand God through Scripture, will affect how we read these particular sections. Proverbs tells us that, though. In Proverbs 1.7, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of all knowledge. We talked about this last week, too. Um, so that's, that's nothing new here. And so... Um, like I, like I, sorry, I jumped ahead of myself here. Like I said, if you fundamentally be, believe that God is a God of fierce judgment, that he's going to smite sinners, you're going to read Daniel and Revelation through that lens. You're going to understand there's a wickedness all over the earth, and God will end that wickedness with force and power. And so when you read Daniel, you'll see that. On the other hand, if you fundamentally believe that God is gentle, you're going to read it through that lens, that he desires all people to be saved, and, and so they will be. Now, I would challenge you then, in those particular spaces, to hold those two views in tension with one another. Because we do see throughout Scripture that God is a God of justice. We see it all through Scripture, that God even declares that about himself. But we talked last week as well that justice is different than vengeance. Justice is, biblical justice is restorative. I'm going to allow you to experience the consequences of your actions, almost always in the Old Testament. God has always told them what those are going to be beforehand. I'm going to let you experience the consequences of your actions so that hopefully you come back into the flourishing life I desire for you. Vengeance, on the other hand, is you, you cause someone to feel pain, and I'm going to make you feel that same pain or worse. And so we see that throughout the Old Testament, that God is a God of justice, but it's restorative justice, and how do we wrestle with that? But we also see that God is a God of love. It actually says that God is love. That's throughout Scripture. So how do we, how do we hold those two things in tension with each other? I find a passage to be really helpful is, is in Hebrews 12, where it describes God as Father. It says, God's the kind of God that will give you correction, 
like all fathers do, and it's not pleasant all the time. Sometimes it's something we don't like at all, but the purpose is to redirect you towards something greater. All right. So after probably one of the longest preambles I've ever done, are we ready to actually look at our passage today? Good. We're going to be in Matthew 24. Um, now maybe you can see why we're going to need a cutting room floor, right? We need, there's, so much th- there's so much in all the things I just said that we could talk more about. Again, I've been down some weird rabbit holes lately, um, and hopefully we can do that tonight. So hopefully you can be back with us tonight for that. But we're going to be in Matthew 24. Um, one more thing. I'm not completely done with the preamble. Uh, remember last week, it matters that this whole section begins when Jesus and his disciples are walking through Jerusalem. They're next to the temple. They see these massive buildings, this massive wonder of the world that is the temple of Herod in Jerusalem. And, the, and, and Jesus says, you see these amazing buildings? Not one stone will remain on top of the other. And the disciples asks, ask him, when is that going to happen? And when are you going to come into your kingdom? Those two questions are, are, are what kicks off this whole particular section. And so last week we, said, we saw that Jesus said the destruction of Jerusalem will come before the end of this generation, 40 years. This is the, the, Hebrew, the, the Hebrew understanding of a generation is 40 years. So within 40 years of the time that they're speaking, Jerusalem will be destroyed. Actually, it was 37 years, if you're interested. So 37 years from that moment, Jerusalem is destroyed by Rome. But now he's going to answer the second question. When will you come into your kingdom? And he does it like this. Matthew 24, 36. But about that day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving up in marriage, up to the day that Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken and another left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill, one will be taken and the other left. <clears throat> so we jump right into this weird section, right? Now often this particular part of the scripture gets applied to the idea of rapture. Maybe if you, did anybody here grow up Baptist? Okay, um, we're going to push on the Baptists a little bit today. Hope you're going to be okay with that. Challenge me if you want. But uh, my wife grew up Baptist too. She's downstairs. She already got mad at me for part of it, which is good. So I had to change it and soften it up a little bit. That was good. Uh, but a couple different things we see right out of the gate here. First, uh, I think it's super important that when Jesus begins to answer the second question, he begins the way he does. But about the day or the hour, no one knows. Not the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. I want you to hold on to that phrase because I think that matters so much to how we interpret the rest, right? What Jesus is saying here right at the beginning is that trying to figure out when this is going to happen is not the point. Trying to figure out the specific details of what is going on so that I can make a prediction of when the world's going to come with math is not the point of what he's saying. He opens that, I think, really clearly to say, don't do that. He goes, I don't even know when it's coming. I can't hide a secret message here because I'm not even sure when it is, right? So if we're doing that, we're in the wrong space. <clears throat> but then again, we, we move to the second part of this where we said it, it applies, it, a lot of times it gets applied to the rapture. Now, like I said, first of all, I understand that some of you grew up in denominations who believe in the rapture. Uh, and like I said at the beginning, issues like this one, there are very thoughtful people who are doing their best to follow Jesus, 
who believe that, and then there are those who believe differently. And so we're not here necessarily to solve it once and for all, uh, but it is something we can wrestle with similar to Genesis 1. That being said, even though the rapture is popular in culture because it's exciting, right? The Left Behind books, anybody read those? Things like that. More mainline denominations reject the idea of rapture than accept it. Now, I know the Baptists are big, but they are in the minority of overall denominations that believe in the rapture. Uh, the idea of rapture wasn't even part of church language until, anybody want to guess? No one wants to guess. 1830 is the first time that we see the rapture even being used inside of Christian language. It's late. Most of the theology, that theology, like the big doctrinal things that you, that you may hold on to, come from the first century, not the 1800s. Right? That's a big gap when we're, when we're talking about those things. So if we're talking about the destruction of Jerusalem and the coming of Rome, that, that, that affects the way that we even understand this idea of one being taken and one being left. Jesus is saying that we're still talking about how, the, how, how Rome is coming into this space and that at, at some point in the midst of this thing, the kingdom's going to take on a new look. Now, one of the things that we do know about Rome in particular is that they were exceptionally good at terror and torture. Uh, it, in the history of the world, there may have not been a better institution uh, at doing that than Rome. We know that in the ancient world, often to make points, especially if they're dealing with people they see as rebellious, Rome would go out of their way to make sure that you knew Rome was bigger and stronger than you were. One of the ways they would do that is they would march into a place where there are families. They would take a person in the family. They would crucify them in front of the rest of the family. Leave one to tell the story. Take one to be the example. Is that what Jesus is saying here? I'm not sure. Is it possible, though? Yes. There are two women at the mill. One is taken, one is left. Could it be that Rome grabbed one of them, says to the rest of the community, this is what happens if you mess with us, especially because we know in history that Israel has this habit of rebelling, and Rome had a habit then of squashing that. Passages like this one are used to argue for the rapture, and maybe... That could be the case. But remember, we're in the midst of some apocalyptic language. Which, another aspect of which connects us to other places of prophecy in the Bible. Maybe it's about flying away in the clouds. But maybe not. And we'll keep dealing with that as we move forward. So let's continue. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and wouldn't have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come in an hour when you do not expect it. Again, if the point that we're making here is not to try to figure out when the time is coming, Jesus is making a different point here. Because he's just, he's just um, used the metaphor of a thief, which is a weird thing to compare yourself to. But, we, but he's making a different point here, so hold on to that. He says, okay, be ready for Jesus' coming. But then he goes on. Who then is the faithful and wise servant, whom the master has put in charge of his servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, my master is staying away a long time. And then he begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. 
The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and an hour he's not aware of. He'll cut him into pieces, that's a weird thing to say, and assign him to a place with the hypocrites where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Warning, this section has a lot of gnashing of teeth, so it just is. But we can see, that all, we can see already that Jesus' words just got weird. This is hard stuff to deal with. We're cutting people into pieces now. He's comparing himself to a thief what do we do? He's comparing, he's seeing people, people are snatched away. What do we do with all of that? See, remember when I said your perspective and God will affect your reading, and that applies to this section in a big way. Again, if you're going to read through this section as God being this vengeful, angry person, you're going to read this as the master coming back to give people their due justice. If we're going to take, but the other way we could take that is inside of the context of the coming, or the context of Matthew, in which over and over and over again, Matthew has said, The kingdom of heaven is all around you, and I want you to experience it. It's a different approach then. It's more about the, the, that God be, is disappointed that we've missed the good things that were around us because we got complacent than it is about him being angry and vengeful. But Jesus keeps going as well. And for the sake of time, I'm, not going, to, I'm going to paraphrase the next story as he's describing the coming of the age. Um, it's a story about some young girls who are waiting on bridegrooms with lamps. Maybe you've heard about this before. There's this, there's this bridegroom that's supposed to come. There's, a, there's, a, there's ten virgins who are holding lamps waiting for him, which is the thing that would happen. And those lamps require oil. And some of them brought extra oil and some of them didn't. And so when the bridegroom comes, some of them had to run out to get more oil and they then missed the party because they weren't ready for it. Uh, another strange story. But I want to close with Jesus' last parable in this series. It's Matthew 25, 14, and it says this. It says, again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one, he gave five bags of gold or talents, depending on your translation, and to another, two bags, and another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went and, at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole, and hid it in the ground, or it, and, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other, brought the other five. Master, he said, you have entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things, and I will put you in charge of many things. Come share in your master's happiness. The master with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you have entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you're a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. That's important. Don't miss that part. He's the only one who actually has a negative view of the master. The others, too, see him as generous and caring. So again, the way that we understand God really affects how we read things, right? So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked and lazy servant, so, that I, so, so you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. 
Take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has ten bags. For those who have will be given more and and they will have an abundance. As for those who do not have, even what they do have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weaving and gnashing of teeth. There's our gnashing of teeth again. So clearly, in this particular section, we can see that apocalyptic literature is difficult to understand. What in the world is going on here? We have virgins. We have, we have, we have uh, people who have bags of gold. We have people, thieves. We have people getting cut into pieces. It's a really, really weird section that's similar, than, similar to what we read in, like, in, books, in places like Daniel or Revelation. Now, I don't have time this morning to break down all the complexities of just what we just read, and I honestly am not sure I can. Um, I could give some insight in bits, but there's, there's parts that are really tricky. Now, I value Scripture a lot, and so I, I want us to know what Jesus is trying to teach here. And it may take us the rest of our lives to figure out exactly how all those nuances work. Because we would all need to spend a little bit more time in the Old Testament to really wrap our minds around all of the different images that Jesus is using. Because there are parts in the sections that we just read and even the sections that we skip over that are clearly alluding to places like Isaiah or Daniel. They're clearly tying back into Old Testament prophetic things that my guess is many of us haven't spent our lives marinating on. I know I haven't. They're hard. There's one section, especially as we're talking about rapture, that's clearly pointing to the book of Daniel. In Daniel 7.13, it says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power, and all the nations and people of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is like one that will never be destroyed. In the book of Daniel, there's, there's this idea that there's, there, there's, this, there's all these beasts. We saw that picture of them earlier. And then each of those represent a nation. And then there's this final massive force beast, fourth beast who comes at the end and tramples everything. And then Jesus comes in the clouds and that puts an end to all of that. And that's another passage that we often apply to the rapture, that Jesus is going to come into the clouds and we're going to get sucked up and get to float with him, right? But if you actually read the passage in Daniel, Jesus is coming in the clouds, but where does he come to? He doesn't come to earth. He comes to his throne in heaven. But he's not coming down to get us. He's taking his spot there. We just point that out to, to, to realize that this is really complex stuff that takes a lot of time. I've made that point very, very forcefully today. I get that. But what's then the point of this? What do we actually do with sections of the scripture like this? How do we actually use them to mean something to us now? It's easy to take the language of these passages and just reuse them to create images or models to give certainty to very difficult words. And there are times when that can be helpful as we're wrestling with what God is telling us. But if we get too married to our models of these ideas that how things are going to work, Things can get really weird really quickly and we can miss the point entirely. We're going to see that a lot next week when we look at hell. What we realize when you start to look at hell is that a lot of our common understandings of what we think hell is, is not shaped by scripture at all. Shaped by an ancient book called Dante's Inferno. You guys heard of that one? Almost every popular culture image you have of hell comes from Dante's Inferno, not from scripture. 
which is fascinating. When our models become the thing that drive us, whether it's rapture or hell or heaven, we start to apply them onto Scripture and we build these really weird things. Models can be helpful for us as long as we, let, we hold them humbly enough to let Scripture continue to shape us. Things like the rapture, whether true or not, then begin to shape our understanding of eternity, our understanding of our purpose on earth now. If rapture is the core of our understanding, it can create these kinds of theologies. How many of you have ever heard the song, Fly, Fly Away? Now, I understand that that's a slave song, and there is a space for that that is an entirely different context. But then the church took it and made it into something a little bit different, where we're just, we're, we, we live here on earth to persevere through the crumminess of it to then escape it. Yeah? That was, that's a model that got built, and it became a huge part of how the church interacted with, sections of the church interact with the world. That we're here just passing through, getting ready to fly away, because it's an escapist idea that we're here, this place is miserable, and we need to escape it. Well, you can start to see how that begins to shape every aspect of our faith lives then, right? All of a sudden, the church just becomes about saving souls so they're not left behind. I'm taking way too many shots at the Baptist. I get it. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, John. He's laughing, so we're still good for now. Woo! <laughs> The Baptists are great. My, my in-laws are all Baptists. There's, they do wonderful things. I just want to say that. But, it, but again, if we have this escapist theology, then it becomes about just saving souls so we're not left behind. Now, I'm all for that. I'm all for saving souls, for people to be with Jesus in that way. But, it, but, but, the, but I think in many cases, then, if we get hyper-focused on that, we miss a massive part of the gospel. Being saved is part of the gospel, definitely, but not the entirety. There are so many more words in Scripture dedicated to building the kingdom now than there are to just being saved. The, the ratio is not even close. Which is why I wanted to end with the parable of the talents. Because I think, like the beginning does, it shows that that's what Jesus' point is too. We can argue about the, the, the nuances of what exactly he meant for years and theologians already have, for about the last little over 2,000 years, have argued what he meant by that. And they still will, which is good. We still will. We're wrestling with who God is and what he means to us. But I think the parable of the talent shows that the nuances are, <clears throat> are not as important as the broader point that Jesus is making. He's saying, I'm going to tell you this weird stuff, and I want you to wrestle with that. But realize, I'm not trying to help you figure out how this world is going to end specifically. I'm not trying to make you, help you figure out what the timing looks like. I'm trying to make a different point. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He's letting them know that in their generation, things are going to get pretty messed up. And from our perspective in history, he wasn't wrong. 70 AD, the temple is destroyed. And essentially, shortly after that, the nation of Israel ceases to be until 1948. There is no nation of Israel after the destruction of, shortly after the destruction of the temple in 70 AD until, 70, or until 1948, it's the diaspora. It, the Jews still exist, obviously, but all around the world, not in their nation. If you are a disciple and Jesus is saying things are going to get messed up, the foundation, the core of your identity will not be anymore, we can start to understand why he uses such colorful language. Externally, things are going to get really bad for them. It's going to feel like evil is winning. And Jesus is telling them, don't lose hope in the midst of that. But then he goes on beyond that point. 
Jesus will be resurrected. He will reign in his kingdom and will be available to all people. Pentecost is, is his spirit that fills his followers. And so it's easy at that point then to believe one or two different things. Either that evil is destroyed, Jesus wins and it's over. And what Jesus is communicating here is that that's not how it works. That even though the resurrection is a victory, evil continues to exist and things can still be bad after that. But the other perspective we can take is it can create a kind of apathy. As we wait for the fullness of the kingdom to come, Jesus says the kingdom begins to come. It's breaking through already while he's alive and even more so after his death and resurrection. But then he's also letting us know, and then there's going to be a long time, which will feel long whether you're a disciple shortly after the resurrection or whether you're a person who lives 2,000 years later. There's going to be a long time when we wait for the fullness of kingdom, the kingdom to come. And that can create in some people an apathy or a complacency. That, I, that, I, that the, the, the loss of the excitement of right after the resurrection. What Jesus is doing in this section is speaking into both of those things. Both, both of them, specifically in the parable of the talents. He's letting them know that after the resurrection, people will be given gifts according to their abilities. They're going to be blessed to do what? To create more blessing, which is always the purpose of Israel in the first place. I'm going to bless you to bless other people. He's saying the kingdom has come, so now go out and make more kingdom. The kingdom is available to everybody, but some people, and some people are going to grasp that, and they're going to take what they've been given and double it, make more. This blessing that people have experienced inside of the kingdom, different for different people, will then produce more kingdom in this world, which will be amazing. He says to us as well, he goes, some of us, though, will might miss it, will waste it, will bury it. And that's a sad thing, Jesus is saying, for the world, because now what could have been produced isn't, and for the person themselves, because they, they begin to lose the sight of what the kingdom even should have been. That is this constant growing thing. Because this is where the beauty of apocalyptic literature lies. When Jesus speaks these words, he's speaking to a group of real people living in a real place in a real time in history. He's warned them, he's encouraged them, he's pressed them on real things that would come and happen in their lifetime. And those same principles apply to us today. We live in the post-resurrection world. Jesus sits on the throne. The kingdom of heaven is all around us. We have access to the Holy Spirit. We've been blessed. We can talk more about specifically what that means on a different day. The kingdom has broken through to earth. And now we've been tasked to continue to usher that in. We talked a couple weeks ago about what that looks like. That I actually think that we can experience little tastes of heaven here and now. That there are spaces we can walk into that become transcendent, that are bigger than their actual moment. That there's something so magical or magnificent, not magical, magnificent and big in those moments in which we actually say, this must be the kingdom. And those are the kind of things that we, one, are told not to miss and two, to share with other people. But the other side of that then applies as well. Both the blessings and the warnings are still applicable. There's still an enemy that creates brokenness in this world. We all know that to be true. Like the disciples, we can look around and we see in this world that there are wars and poverty and famine 
and sickness. And I know there have been times in my life where those kinds of things make it incredibly easy for me to become jaded and apathetic. Anyone else with me on that one? If I lose focus on the kingdom things that are happening in my life, which there are many, but it's very, very easy for me to lose focus on that. I can, all I start to see is the brokenness. And it can feel like things are falling apart. Like the disciples may have been after the fall of Jerusalem, it can feel like everything's broken. Imagine if they had stopped, though. The fact is, there's still an enemy that wages war on our souls internally. We know it's true. We're drawn to things that hurt us. You can call it sin. It's the word the scripture uses. Right? We talked about what sin is. Sin is a Greek archery term that means to miss the mark. There's a way to flourish. And if you're sinning, you're missing that. You're missing what flourishing looks like. We know that we're drawn to things that don't bring us to flourishing. Sometimes it doesn't even make sense. Right? There's an enemy that's still working on us there. We're prone to broken relationships, to pride, or individualism, or selfishness. So whatever it is, we realize that if we become apathetic, that if we lose sight of the kingdom, if we run out of oil, like in that story, the ma- <clears throat> we, if we say to ourselves, well, the master is staying away for a long time, so we might as well do what we want. We understand how easy it is for us to fall into that space. So Jesus lets, me know, lets us know that if we choose that path, that we won't experience the kingdom life. Now again, we've mentioned a number of times that our perception of God is going to shape how we understand that passage. If you view God as an angry, vengeful, Zeus-like lightning bolt thrower, you're not experiencing the kingdom because he's angry with you and he's punishing you. If you view God as a father, you see that as somebody who allows you to experience the consequences of the actions you've chosen. Very different. The fact of the matter is, throughout Scripture, and we see it again here, that if you want to experience the kingdom, you must work to experience the kingdom. God is good. He is. He desperately wants to be with you. That's the, way I, that's the lens that I use to read Scripture. And so he's told you how, how to walk into that. How do we, how do, God says, this is how you and I have a great relationship with each other. How you turn from the things that are hurting you towards the things that help you to flourish. He's given you that direction. But he also says, if you're not going to do that, you won't experience it. Which shouldn't be that much of a foreign concept for us. Let's say I'm massively overweight. And I want to get in shape. A coach can tell me exactly what I need to do. Eat these things, do these workouts, uh, go to these places, and this is the regiment you want to use. If I were then to get that pathway forward, say that sounds great, and not do any of it, how much weight do I lose? None, right? So often we get mad at God by saying, how could you keep the kingdom life from me? He's like, I don't want to. I've told you how to get it, but you need to do the things. Right? So often I could say, hey God, how, why am I not healthy? Because he's like, because you don't ride your bike enough, which is true. And Dave sometimes texts me and lets me know that, which I appreciate, Dave. Thanks. Yeah, I, I rode after you did, by the way, so that was good. Dave was like, hey, what's the... I told him to keep me accountable and then had a busy week, and he's like, dude. And I'm like, no! So anyway, thanks, Dave. 
Um, but, but the point is that God, God has, does, desires us to move into this space. And that's what the parable of the talents is saying. You've been given the path. There's a blessing available to use it or waste it. See, the Bible, in my opinion, is pretty clear on the fact that we aren't here to just fly away. That we can begin to experience this kingdom life here and now. And that God wants more than anything for us to do that because it's good for you. Because the more you taste that, the more we can share next step stories of saying, I, did this, I took this step and what I experienced was something greater than I imagined. I didn't think I was called to ministry with students. And when I got there, I realized that they changed me as much as I changed them. I didn't think that, this, that a prayer life would have an impact on me, really. And then when I started to do it, it changed my perspective each and every day. I didn't actually believe that forgiveness is something that, can bring, that, even though it's painful, can actually bring a fullness that I didn't know before. When we start to experience that for ourselves, we can then share those same experiences with other people and help them to believe the same thing. The, the people we trust the most are ones who said, I've been through what you've been through. I've found this to be the way out. I know it's hard, but walk with me, right? So we have to, so whether we can, we can, I think so often we as the church waste our time because we spend so much time on passages like this trying to figure out what exactly the rapture is or how the world's going to end or what all those pieces are, and that was never the point at all. What Jesus is saying is that we, we're living in a space in which we have talents waiting for us, kingdom experiences offered to us. And what are we going to do with those? You all have talents, experiences with God. What are you going to do with them? Are you going to use them to create more experiences for yourself and those around you? Or are you going to bury it and waste it and make it useless? The point of passages like this, I think, are to push us into a world-changing kind of space in which we can see the kingdom break through more and more, even amidst the brokenness we see all around us. Will you pray with me? Father God, we just we come before you this morning realizing that often we miss the point. They get, we get caught up in other things that are more exciting or stranger or, or whatever they may be, and in the midst of that, don't actually do the kingdom work you've called us to. God, we pray for eyes this week, eyes to understand the areas in our lives in which we've experienced the blessing of your kingdom and eyes, in which we're, and we're, eyes for, which, for the places in which we can share that with those around us. Give us specific things, step, steps to take, so we can be a kind of people that rather than waiting to fly away to another place can begin to start the journey towards eternity now. Amen.